calling all lovers of mystery and fans of a good story. If you haven't already heard me talk about June's journey, you're in for a treat. It's time to don your detective hat in this free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. In June's journey, you get to play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. And did I mention it's set in the glitzy 1920s? New chapters are added weekly, so you will never run out of new thrills to uncover, and you can also personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device, or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. Hey there, it's Rachel Ballinger, and I am thrilled to invite you to Rachel Uncensored, my podcast where I get real with my friends and celebrity guests, where we talk about all sorts of topics. From personal stories to hot button issues, we cover it all. New episodes drop every Wednesday, so make sure you tune in on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Trust me, you won't want to miss out on the fun and candid conversations we have here on Rachel Uncensored. Realm presents Dark Heights Season 2. Episode 5. Kevin. I was at the wellness center, sitting on the bench outside Dr. Kara's office, headphones on, listening to Francis' mix of new songs, as eclectic as you could imagine. I'd never really encountered anyone else with Francis' respect and interest in all kinds of music. I admired it. Or him. I admired him, let's be honest. A lot of nights now, we were sleeping together. No sex, nothing like that, just sleep, but still. And we spent a lot of our time together. It just seemed to be happening. Neither of us talked about it. We went out to dinner, spending money neither of us had. We went to movies. Then, last night, walking to my car together in the parking lot at the Cineplex, France held my hand. I know, I know... We hadn't kissed yet. This was going to be the night when we kissed for the first time. Except, no. Some asshole and his girlfriend in a white truck passed us by, then stopped. He put down his window and leaned out. Then he yelled at us. Racist, homophobic garbage. France just lost it. He whirled around and strode right up to the truck in a fury. He was pummeling the side of it with his fists, just smashing into it. And he was shouting, Say that again. Say that to my face. Be a man and say it to my face. The white truck accelerated out of there, tires squealing, and went at a crazy speed through the lot, barely avoiding hitting the parked cars. I don't know. Why are all of us so angry all the time? France couldn't get past it. He sank right down into himself. We drove in silence back to his place. He got out and looked at me grimly, mumbled a few things, just went up to his door. That was it. Texted me later, though, then called to apologize to make sure I knew we were okay. More than okay, I wanted to say to France. I'm in love with you. Obviously, you know that. The next day, 
I had a recording session at a rented studio in the valley with Trist, the dream pop duo who had performed at the fundraiser that night at Arson. Except only one of them showed up for it. He didn't really want to talk about it, but Chris, the band's songwriter and keyboardist, was on his own now. His girlfriend, the singer, had left him. In fact, they were right in the middle of their breakup. Chris had written a new song called Drowning, which we proceeded to build together, synth tracks and drum machines and his own vocals. Listening to it, near the end of our time in the studio, Chris and I sat in front of the soundboard, headphones on, not really looking at each other. I took off the headphones and said to him, this is the single most depressing thing I've ever been a part of. He laughed and said, achievement unlocked. But it felt like I couldn't shrug off the cloak of sadness that the recording session had thrown over me. Phone in hand, I texted France rapidly over and over in a catastrophic freefall of weirdness that I tried to immediately take back with rows of LOLs and random gifts of cats. I knew he had his own things going on. Still, I just wanted him to be there. Then he finally texted me back. Sorry, Kevin. What a day. Talk soon. I called Tess again. There was still no answer. Looking at our chat thread on the phone, it struck me again that Tess hadn't even read any of my texts, not for weeks now, and I had things to tell her. The last time we'd really talked, I told Tess I was concerned about Barbara, about the circle, but things had changed since then. I wanted her to know. I'd even tried texting Tess our old high school two-word code for an emergency, Zero Hour, a depiction of where I was one night after my dad had died. Neither of us had ever not responded to it. We'd always come over to help each other out, to talk. Until now. I was worried when I couldn't reach Tess, so I'd driven to her house. At that time, there was still police tape up around the burned-down B&B on Mayfair. You had to slow down, driving past it, and look at the blackened wreckage. Barbara had come to the door to talk to me, and that's how I learned about all of it. The car crash on the night of the fundraiser, Tess staying at Arson indefinitely recovering from the accident. Barbara thought that Tess was doing well, or so she had been told by the Severance. And they'd arranged for there to be help for Barbara as long as Tess was staying with them. They were so kind. It was uncomfortable being angry. I hated it. Honestly, I hated to see anger in anyone, even France. But hearing these things about Tess, she'd been in a damn accident and she hadn't even told me? And now she was living it up at Arson with the billionaires? And she couldn't find the time to take my call or for fuck's sake text me back? At the wellness center, it turned out that the appointment before mine was Mona Wrightson from The Green Machine. She came out of Dr. Carey's office so suddenly bursting out the door it made me jump up from the bench. The song on France's playlist was some top 40 pop song, completely inappropriate to the moment. I wanted to ask Mona about Tess if Tess quit working for her, but I wasn't sure if Mona really knew who I was. I'd never seen Mona at the wellness center before, and I wondered if she just started going to Dr. Carey. 
Very belatedly, I realized that she had been crying. A lot. Her face was puffy and red. There were tear tracks beneath her eyes. Then our eyes met, and she quickly looked away, embarrassed. This was one of those terrible situations where no one knows what to do. And in those situations, I usually do the weirdest thing possible. Because I can't handle it. I reached out and I put my hand on her arm. Not in a comforting way, like hand straight out onto her arm. Haptomania, needing to touch. She just stared at me. Imagine some pudgy oddball guy with headphones on just touching you for no reason. I took my hand back like it was on fire, pulled my headphones down. I'm so sorry, I croaked out. She tried to smile and failed. Then she gestured to the open door to Dr. Carey's office. Are you next? Yeah. I hung my head. I'm next. A lot of the interactions I have with people go something like that. Neither person really understands what just happened, and both of us just feel uneasy about it. Maybe that's my role in the world, just to be confusing, to keep everyone on their toes. Except, why did it feel like I'd failed once again to make a connection, when maybe if I'd said the right thing, done the right thing, I could have helped her, or understood her, or made things better somehow? Regardless, Mona left the waiting room, and I went into Dr. Carey's office. Melinda Carey was almost always at her desk when I came in for a session. Today, she was standing at the bookshelf that took up the entire far wall of her office. Go ahead and have a seat, Kevin, she said over her shoulder. I didn't immediately do what she asked. I went over to her desk. There were a lot of books piled up there, a couple of thick tomes with titles of psychiatric syndromes I couldn't even pronounce, let alone understand. There was a small old paperback, worn and frayed at the spine, held together by a rubber band. The cover was a man's portrait obscured by blotches of psychedelic color. Midnight City Midnight was the title of the paperback, by Devin Hanlon. Wow, what is this? I said to Dr. Carey. It wasn't much of a secret anymore, if it ever had been, that Dr. Carey and Devin Hanlon were dating, but I'd never seen or heard of this book. Dr. Carey came over. Yeah, I think I have to read it, but I really don't want to. He wrote this? I took the rubber band off and opened it. I read the first few sentences. This story is true, even if you choose not to believe it. It's my story. I lived it. All these events took place in 1999 during the filming of the third and final season of the television program, City Midnight. It's like an autobiography or something? Don't get me started. Devin spent years trying to find every copy of this book and make them all disappear. Why? She seemed embarrassed. Apparently, it's some really, really out there stuff. But you have a copy. I pointed out. It's his only one. He gave it to me to read. Kind of a full disclosure situation. So, having said that, I'll take it back from you if that's okay. Yeah, of course. I handed the book to her, then sat myself down in the comfy chair. They're doing a reboot of that show, aren't they? Dr. Carey put the book back on her desk. Devin's heading to Toronto to film it. But maybe we should start now. Let's talk about you. 
Our session was just another rehearsal of the same old routine. How was I managing my compulsions? Fine. Was I having any moments where I felt unusually anxious? No. What I really wanted from Dr. Carey was for her to tell me how to stop myself from not being Francis' boyfriend. All the time I was spending with him and in every moment of it, I just wanted to tell him the truth. I wasn't good enough for him. Not even close. And there was something else. I was keeping something from him. From Dr. Carey, too. I saw Mona Wrightson in the waiting room, I said. Is that right? She was crying. I'm not sure where you're going with this, Kevin. You know I can't talk about my other patients in treatment. Tess told me once that Mona Wrightson and Karen from the B&B had been a couple like this infamously dramatic epic couple in Park Heights when they were in high school. I just understand it, I guess. I understand how upset she is. I wanted to say to Dr. Carey that it made me think about my dad, about losing my dad, but I didn't say it. I had found a different place where I could talk about my dad. The hour elapsed. I left her office. Usually I checked in with Nazreen at the reception desk. Something about her impolite abruptness always made me smile. There was someone at the desk already talking to her, asking questions to which she was giving terse replies. I came closer. It was a young guy, very good looking if a little bit disheveled, unshaven, wearing a golf shirt that was just a little bit rumpled. I heard him ask Nazreen, Did Zack ever come here for anything? Nazreen was scowling. Like I said before, I can't answer those kinds of questions, obviously. He shrugged. That's okay, I understand. Thanks for your patience. We exchanged a look as he turned to leave. Institutional red tape crap, am I right? And then, before walking out, he gave me a brusque, manly nod of acknowledgement, which made me freeze in a moment of indecision about returning the nod or not. I didn't. Not nearly manly enough. I said, Who was that? Nestreen had been watching him walk out the front door. He said his name was Jason Price. Wasn't Zach the kid who died in the car crash that night? I didn't say, in the car with Tess. Nasreen nodded. That was his brother. Really. He asked about Tess, too. That's weird. I had a strong urge to go after him, find out why he was asking about Tess. But then Nasreen suddenly said, I can see you, you know. I turned to her. What do you mean? You've been going to the circle and you've been sneaking around the side of the building over to 101 Wing. I have a monitor here that flips between the security cam views. I've watched you every time. Huh. Well, that sucks. Was my face turning red? I was pretty sure it was, considering how hot I suddenly felt. I'm just saying I don't know why you're sneaking around the side. You can go down the hall right here, out the back door. 101 Wing is right there. I thought that door was locked. It's never been locked. Everyone uses it. You don't say. She fixed me with a look that felt like it pierced into the core of my being. Big attendance numbers lately for the circle, including you, I guess. And that was it. The end of our conversation. You can shop from anywhere doing pretty much anything. You might shop while working eating, or even listening to this podcast. And however you shop, we all know and love the thrill of the hunt. 
But do you also know how to get the thrill of the best deals? Because Rakuten shoppers do. With Rakuten, they get the deals they love with the most savings and cash back. And you can get it too. Start getting cash back at your favorite stores like Sephora, Nike, and even Expedia if you're looking to get some travel in. And getting cash back doesn't mean you have to miss out on sales because those can just be stacked right on top. It's easy to use and based on a simple idea. Stores pay Rakuten for sending them shoppers and Rakuten shares the money with you as cash back through PayPal or check. Download the free Rakuten app and never miss a deal. Or go to Rakuten.com to start getting the most bang for your buck. That's R-A-K-U-T-E-N. island in frigid lake superior a fabricated creature birthed from the mind of a disturbed genius stalks the very people who created it ancestor by number one new york times best-selling author scott sigler is a classic tale of science gone horribly wrong available wherever you get your podcasts suddenly she turned back to her monitor and was typing rapidly on her keyboard as if i wasn't still standing there of course she was right. I had been going to the circle, and I'd been sneaking over to 101 Wing. I knew the door wasn't locked. I'd seen Barbara using it plenty of times. It was just... I hadn't really felt comfortable going down the hall and out the door and crossing the enclosure in full sight of anyone who might be watching. Not much point in doing that anymore. I went through the door. 101 Wing was a long, low building on the other side of the enclosure space of dead grass. Its entrance was a double door with a push bar. On the inside of the door's glass window, crossed with wire mesh, the same white piece of paper was still taped up. The letter O, written in Sharpie. A circle. It could have been a zero, too, I suddenly thought. Zero hour. But I texted to Tess, and still no response from her. Like, it's not an emergency anymore now that we're older. Like, we're always at zero hour now. Someone opened the doors to 101 Wing from the inside. That first time I'd come here, it had been Hannah, the very young girl with the two blue streaks in her hair. She hadn't let me in that time. She'd said I wasn't ready. Today, it was one of the guys who came here every day from the Amarana trailer park. One of the Bethel boys, that's what they called themselves. He said to me, Hey, Kevin, come on in. Hi, Bob, I said. Bob had a very odd energy. He was wire-thin and nervously fidgety. He had a massive Adam's apple in the front of his throat that went up and down all the time and was impossible not to look at. Can you give me a ride home? He asked, which was the only thing he'd ever really said to me other than hello. What was that? I need a ride home. Um, maybe? In the hallway, there was the longest lineup yet of people waiting to be taken into a visitation session. Maybe halfway down the line, I saw Barbara. She always seemed out of place among the other attendees. She dressed like a femme fatale in an old movie for today's visitation, complete with a white scarf over her hair. She was wearing sunglasses, which she scooted down from her eyes before waving at me. Then, with a bit of shock, I realized that Tina Marsh, Charlie Mills' aunt, was immediately ahead of me in line. We mumbled some hellishly awkward hellos. It was actually difficult to be so close to her. She wouldn't look me in the eye. Finally, I just said it. How is... how is Charlie doing? 
At first, I couldn't understand her. She was whispering, mumbling down at her shoes. I had to lean in closer. Staying at the Evergreen most of the time, she finished saying. I was working on what I wanted to say to her. Sorry that your husband died in jail, but I hated him more than anyone I've ever known. And is it true that he hurt Charlie so bad that Charlie has to wear that luchador mask, but no one will ever know what happened because you'll never tell anyone, will you? When I was interrupted by Hannah. So awesome you're here today, she said excitedly. It's just packed. Oh, hey, Hannah. Yeah, I can see that. Truthfully, I found Hannah's bubblegum bounciness a little bit much, but she'd never been anything but happy to see me and fascinated by anything I had to say. Hannah and everyone else at the circle, they weren't what I'd expected. They had welcomed me as if I'd always belonged there. I'd been worried about Barbara. Like before, I'd followed her over to 101 Wing. This was only a couple of days after the fundraiser at Arson. Hannah had met me at the door again, but this time she'd let me in without a word. On that day, there hadn't been many attendees, and Hannah took Barbara and me right into the visitation room at the end of the hall. It had been an unremarkable setting for a gathering, the kind of low-ceilinged, thin-carpeted institutional room where AA meetings took place or group sessions, maybe a community health center yoga class. There'd been one of those plywood tables off against one wall with a huge tank of coffee and a stack of styrofoam cups. There were chairs set in a circle, of course. Everyone had taken a chair. There'd been just enough for all of us. The woman who led the group had introduced herself as Eve. She'd had a warm smile for the room, but her eyes were pure, no nonsense. I noticed right away she had really beautiful long white hair with one stark streak in it. Pure black. Eve always led the circle. Let's start with a prayer, she'd said, which was a surprise. I'd expected something a lot more obviously evil, cult-like, or just out there bonkers. Eve's prayer was standard fare. God look in on us today. Help us with the work we have to do. Then there was something I didn't quite follow, something that sounded biblical, something about getting ready for a flood. Finally, Eve had said, our gratitude goes to Walt Law for founding the circle here at the Wellness Center. Which was maybe something weird. Then everyone there, except for me it being my first time, turned to the person seated next to them, met their eyes, and said, I am sorry for your loss. And that person turned to the next, repeating the words, I am sorry for your loss. This was done at the beginning of every circle visitation, like a greeting of equals, like sharing those simple words. I am sorry for your loss. The man seated to my right began to speak about his son who had died five years ago. Then a woman across from me had started talking about her mother's fight against breast cancer, how she'd lost that fight. Barbara Bellamy had listened to both of them with tears in her eyes. Then it was my turn to talk. Right up until that moment, I thought I was an intruder in this place, or at best just an observer. I thought I was Tess's true detective, solving the mystery of Barbara's involvement in the circle. Then Eve looked at me, waiting for me, patient but expectant. And I began to talk about my dad. In the hallway now, where I was standing next to Charlie Mills' aunt, Hannah said to me, It's all going so great. 
Down at the end of the hallway, I recognized one of the Bethel boys. I think his name was Otto. He was a pretty big, hulking dude, quickly pushing someone across from one room to the other in a wheelchair. I only got a glimpse of it. The man in the wheelchair had been slumped sideways, head hanging weirdly. Anna, who is that in the wheelchair? Oh, that's Renner. Otto just brought him in from the trailer park. I didn't think about it any more than that. Looking at all the people waiting, I said, There's no way I'm getting into a visitation today, is there? Hannah was never not sunny. Depends on how long you wait. Bob was hovering in the hallway near me. I could practically feel him vibrating with this special brand of nervous energy on overflow. Bob, you want to go? I can drive you home if you want, he said. Oh, good. Yes, please. Well, this was going to be awkward. How long would it take to drive from the wellness center up through Park Heights and down Amarana Road to the trailer park? Way too long. Surprise twist, Bob was a man of few words. I don't know if it was worse, the two of us driving without saying anything, or better than having to figure out what to say back to him. We drove past the Evergreen Motel. Charlie Mills' aunt had just told me that Charlie was spending more time there. I slowed down, wondering if Gary Cooper still let Charlie stay in the same room that we used to when we wanted to get away from everything. Sure enough, I saw Charlie walking his bike across the parking lot. And yes, he was going up to the same room. Except there was someone there, already in that room, waiting for him. The door opened as Charlie approached. It was a huge man. The bulk of him filled the doorway. It even looked like he had to stoop to fit through it. He was wearing a long black coat. The man raised one hand to wave at Charlie, and Charlie waved back eagerly before going on inside. Hold on, I said to Bob. I turned into the Evergreens lot. Is something wrong? Bob said. I don't know. As I slowed the car down to a stop, the light in the window of the room went out. Just, Bob wait here. I got out of the car and walked closer to the room. What was I doing? It was getting dark out. I didn't feel comfortable knocking on Charlie Mills' motel room door. Whatever was going on was maybe just not my business. Charlie was okay. He'd waved hello before going into the room. Then I saw there was a folded up piece of paper on the ground. I bent down to pick it up. I unfolded it. It was one of Charlie's maps on graph paper. Or no, it was something different. An incredibly detailed pencil drawing of a knife or a sword. Like a fantasy world short sword, something reminiscent of a D&D illustration. Peering closer at it, I saw that the sword was, after all, actually a map. Its edges were the borders of a country, and the lines of detail along the blade and the hilt were roads, rivers, very tiny sentences and words that I couldn't quite make out, but I thought might be the names of cities and castles. Charlie had always drawn these kinds of things. I held this one out in my hands. For some reason, the tiny details in it were difficult to look at too long. It made me feel dizzy. Quietly, as to not disturb anyone in the room, I slid the map out of the door. Back at the car, Bob said, Are we going now? I apologized to him the rest of the way to the trailer park. Amarana Road was a left turn from Beach Boulevard. It took us west through the town, past houses set in large lots thick with wild green growth. And then we were outside of Park Heights altogether. The trees were tall, 
on either side of us. I slowed the car down. The paved road was cracked here, and the tires went roughly over potholes and fissures before the asphalt ended abruptly, changing to gravel. Deeper into the woods, there were long white shapes behind the screen of the trees. I slowed to a stop. There was a wooden sign just to the left of the road where it turned to gravel. Amarana Trailer Park. On the sign, there were two words spray-painted in red. Bethel Boys. Bob got out. Thank you very much, Kevin. Those long white shapes were the trailers. There were a lot of them out there, with two tracks in the grass leading out to them from the gravel road. Bob set off down one of the tracks, into the trees. Now I could see that there were pickup trucks at most of the trailers. Further back, there were picnic tables arrayed in front of a communal bonfire that guttered and gave off black smoke. And there were people everywhere at the picnic tables, stepping out of the doors of the trailers that swung open. I put the car into reverse, got back onto the paved road, three-point turn to change direction. Looking into the rearview mirror, I saw a group of men step onto the road behind me. All of them carried assault rifles. You're listening to Dark Heights Season 2. Dark Heights is a Realm production. Realm, your portal to another world. Listen away. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Buntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Buntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. Dark Heights is created and written by C.D. Miller. Produced by Marco Palmieri, Fred Greenhalge, Kaylin West, and Haley Wagreich. Executive produced by Molly Barton, Marcy Wiseman, and Julian Yap. Starring Dion Graham, Julia Whalen, and Neil Helligers. Sound design, editing, mixing, and mastering by Kaylin West. Original music by Chris Miller. Music supervision by Marcus Bagala. Production manager, Alexis Latshaw. Cover art by Kendall Thomas. Executive in charge for Realm, Mary Osadolahi. Find more shows like Dark Heights by following Realm on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or at realm.fm.